Hey guys, this is Jan. Just wanted to say before this episode starts that we had a little bit of an issue with echoey audio. However, the content is really awesome and I think you're going to really enjoy it if you're able to push through that. But uh, just wanted to say that up front before we got started. Thanks. Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am here with a fantastic guest in James Viola. So James is uh, James and I have been uh, become friends over the last year. He is an agency owner. He owns Family Law Accelerator, but also has a very interesting product with a way that I've seen people reach out to uh, get business for attorneys in a way that I haven't seen before, which is called Linked Leads. So very diverse background, a lot of really interesting stuff that's happening. So thanks for coming on the show, James. Thank you for having me, Jan. How's everything going today so far, man? Ah, good so far. Um, we'll see outside of, we'll see if, if the cops keep up. I'm just kidding. It's, it's not that bad. <laughs> but um, all right. So I wanted to talk about something and um, you and I were chatting a little bit on the pre-call and I was talking about how I had never been able to get family law to work on anything else than Google AdWords. And you guys have been having a lot of success on other platforms like Facebook, but you said it was kind of about a lot of the stuff that you guys are doing on follow-up, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, honestly, we definitely do use a multi-channel approach. As far as cold traffic, it's it's like you said, Facebook and Instagram for sure. And then we also like to use YouTube where it's appropriate. But other than that, I mean, regardless of where the traffic is coming from, we find that it's super important for us to do as much as we can in order to, you know, nurture those leads in a timely fashion. Because, I mean, lead response after five minutes, like, the the line is like this. I mean, it's a podcast, right? So I mean, <laughs> yeah. It Visualize literally falls it. off a cliff, right? Because of that, we give them basically three touch points on in three different fashions, right? One text, one ringless voicemail, and one email right away. Like as soon as they fill out the, the lead form, right? And that enables us to get a much higher response rate, which is going to allow us to qualify or even disqualify as many leads as possible. And that's, I think, what I was talking about in the pre-call is that, you know, for us, disqualifying as many leads as possible before they get on the, on the line with the firm is super important to us, right? Because the reality is, you know, for one reason or another, what we find with those leads is that probably about 92% of them are not going to close right now, right? So it's not like they're going to choose another firm or something else like that. It's like they're either not really ready to move forward yet right with the divorce proceedings or whatever family law matter that they may be facing or they don't have the financial wherewithal to move forward one or the other and we're doing our best to find those things out through a combination of automation and also having account managers inside of uh, our crm to assist with uh, follow-up as much as possible so that we don't tax the actual either lawyer or intake staff depending on you know the structure of the yeah. And that's, it's a really interesting breakthrough too. Cause like, I think the last time, and we still actually have a handful of family firms that we do on average from years ago, but yeah, that was one of the things too. It's a very exciting practice area to be in because, you know, a good divorce case, depending on where you have it could end up being, you know, maybe even a hundred thousand dollars, probably more frequently 10 or 20, but still those are pretty good numbers, but it's also a really weird practice area because 
there's obviously a decision that's made on the part of the prospect, but when they decide to move forward with it, you can't educate somebody on why they need a divorce. But once they have a divorce, it's kind of tricky to, to pick, pick the time when it's, it's a time to move forward. And um, yeah, so I wanted to dig into that a little bit too, because that's also something that's come up a lot too. So when we ever ended up having uh, our family law clients that we were doing way back in the day with the AdWords stuff, I would say probably one out of five of them optimistically would have the intake process baked into what they were doing. And they were the ones who were able to make it actually work. But what you're saying is that you guys have a process where you're able to take that out of people's hands. So, I mean, that's super interesting. So kind of, you know, walk me through how you guys ended up arriving at that process and, you know, what kind of goes into it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was definitely born out of necessity, right? It wasn't like we were just like, Oh, let's innovate this way to, you know, automate uh, <laughs> lead nurturing and, and automate the intake process for our attorneys. It was born out of necessity in that, you know, even though we would generate a certain number of leads and knew that, you know, X amount of them were closable, eventually we would find that people would be end up replying to our clients and saying, Hey, I chose this lawyer over here, or I chose that mediator over there or whatever the case may be. And that definitely has to do with a few different things in, in our estimation and that uh, the speed to, to the lead is certainly one factor there. And then the other thing is like kind of the candor during the intake process, right? So those are two different things, but we're able to help with both because we've seen the firm, our firms that perform best versus the ones that don't close as many deals. And really what ends up being the biggest difference is A, like I said, the, the speed in which we respond to the lead in the first place to get them either scheduled or get them on the line with the firm. And then also, you know, the way that the firm handles that lead, handles that lead once they're on the phone with them, right? And obviously, how do we know that? Because our, our CRM is also, you know, tracking and reporting calls and, and things of that nature. So, so that we can actually review that intake process with the firm and, and if it needs improvement, help them to improve upon that, right? Um, because the bottom line is, you know, the firm's first job is to make sure that the person knows that they called the right place, right? They need to know that they called the, the right firm and they made the right decision by scheduling with your firm rather than just going straight for the jugular and be like, hey, by the way, our retainer is $5,000. So you have that in your back pocket or no? Because the <laughs> bottom line is like 82% of the country doesn't have that in their back pocket right now, right? So the, the job of the firm is the first when we've done our job and got somebody beyond our, our series of questioning inside the CRM and things of that nature and got them on the phone with the firm, the firm's job at that point, the first job is to make them feel reassured that they've made the right decision by choosing that firm to consult with. Then you talk about dollars and cents, and hopefully you're going to be flexible in your payment options and things of that nature as well. And that's really what we've seen is the difference between a firm that closes 20% of the leads versus a, a firm that closes maybe two or 3% of the leads. Right. And okay, got really it. the difference is night and day. Yeah. I was going to say, so, I mean, that's, you know, if anyone's a fan of Grant Cardone, there's your 10 X right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you got a couple extra, but I know as far as the brass tax go, like, you know, when you're talking about the amount of, if somebody wanted to do this organically, and I think we're going to kind of segue into the, <laughs> into the, uh, the automation part. I mean, like as far as the touch points that go into, how long is that sequence? Like what, you know, are we talking days, weeks, months, even like what can it take between the, the initial contact and eventually getting somebody in, into the office? 
Yeah, no, it's a super, super uh, appropriate question there, Jan. And I mean, the reality is it, it really depends on the behavior of the prospect, right? So if the prospect opts in, meaning they fill out a lead form, and for us, a lead form is the reason they're contacting the firm, meaning whether it's divorce or child custody or whatever, visitation, whatever the case may be, right? So the reason they're contacting the firm, first name, last name, email, phone, that's opt-in. Right. So that person is now opted in. Now, if they opt in and then go right to the booking page and book, they're going to go into a sequence that's going to encourage them to show up for their console. And it's also going to ask them a, a little bit more details about their scenario. So as I alluded to earlier, we can try to pre-qualify or even disqualify as many people as possible prior to them even getting on the phone with the firm. Right. Because you know, you'll get people who straight up ask right within the CRM, do you do pro bono or something like along those lines? And, you know, of course, that's not really what, what the firm is looking to provide. So obviously, you know, the, the canned response, so to speak, would be like, hey, like the initial co consultation is free, but no, of course, there's going to be a, a charge depending on your scenario is what will dictate how much that, that charge is going to be. Right? So, you know, that's really what dictates what ends up happening because like if they just book right away they're just going to go into a reminder sequence and you know maybe it's only a day long in that scenario right like i mm. i opt in on wednesday i book for thursday my uh my nursery sequence only takes me up to the call and i get on the call with you, right now let's say somebody opts in but then they don't book right that's where it's going to be extended because it's like okay we're going to give them three touch points within the first 15 minutes or so. And then we're going to space it out maybe one 30 minutes later. And then we're probably going to give them the rest of the day off in terms of touching them, right? Yeah. And then we'll touch them again the next day on a couple of different channels and so on and so forth. And that type of drip will typically only last about five days. But then what we do is that once every 30 days with leads who've gone dormant, meaning they haven't, told us yes or no, good, bad, or otherwise, we'll run a reactivation campaign on those people once every 30 days, right? So that is kind of uh, the way that we approach it. Now, of course, if you have a firm who's willing to outbound dial those leads on top of the stuff that we're already doing, it's only gonna increase the amount that we're able to convert. But we've basically gotten to a point where we don't even expect that, like we don't make it a requirement. Like we don't expect you to outbound dial those leads three times or X amount of times um, because, you know, basically between a ringless voicemail, a text message and an email, we're, and the way that we have the language in our follow-up sequences, we make it very much conversational, right? It's not like very marketing type language. It's super conversational language. So we're doing our best to emulate the idea that a human being at the firm is following up with them even through automation. Right? Yeah. So one thing that I wanted to ask from a technical perspective is I think you mentioned that there, there's a, you know, you have these agents that are primarily working through chat and text messages, that kind of thing. So how have you been able to get people on those channels? Do you see any situations where people choose to respond over email versus the callback versus the voicemail? And I guess in a, in the bigger sense, like how do you end up working in these agents to help kind of take it from the automated part to that, that last, you know, 20% where it's important to have a human interaction? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a fair point. And honestly, like 
don't get me wrong. I mean, obviously, a lot of people are leaning toward that ISA route where they're actually having callers and things of that nature. I mean, for us, what we ultimately want to do is pre-qualify these people prior to them getting on the phone with the firm as much as possible. Mm. Um, and what you just mentioned is is uh, super appropriate, right? So, like with the CRM linked leads that we use, um, <clears throat> basically everything is all there in one coherent thread, right? So like if somebody calls, obviously you can tell they're the type of person who likes to pick up the phone and call yeah. someone, right? And then vice versa, if they respond to a text or they respond to an email, then our agents are gonna respond in kind, right? And the cool thing about that is you're really able to figure out, uh, you know, the preferred method of communication for that particular individual. Uh, for many, um, prospects, it is going to be text message. I mean, that is the overwhelming, uh, most popular form of communication that we have with the overwhelming majority of our leads. But that doesn't mean that there aren't a certain percentage of people that prefer to talk on the phone or a certain percentage of people who prefer email over text, right? And if somebody, you know, if somebody were to, let's say, have all these systems kind of band-aided together the way that we used to have to do it when, you know, when they weren't all under one roof. Well, you know, somebody might respond to you via email and you might not get it and then you might text them, right? Yeah. But that really is disjointed because they've already responded to you via email. So obviously that's the way that you should be replying to them. And that's exactly what we have our account managers do is, you know, they're armed with kind of a library of templates that we've already tested with dozens of other firms and trust me, we've tested a bunch of responses that didn't work, right? They didn't get yeah. any replies. So the, the only ones that we give to our account managers are the ones that have elicited a positive response in the past. The benefit there is, although it's not going to get 100% response rate, the likelihood of getting that positive response using the messaging that we've already tested in the past is, is much higher. Yeah. I want to like kind of highlight that as well for anyone who's kind of listening. And this is the thing too, like when you have a really awesome, sophisticated automation platform, sometimes people go in and this is never something who is experienced with running these kind of platforms will have an expectation for, but there is no system where there's a hundred percent magic bullet reply. That's going to get everyone on the phone. It's about making the percentage of people who get to the next step high every time. And that's kind of what, uh, what James has been talking about here. But um, I actually find it fascinating too, that, um, that you found that SMS is, is the thing. Cause it's like, I've honestly never run the analysis on it, but on, on the stuff that Ferrari, but it's just like, I, I can't help but think of the people who have been buying the infusion soft dream and just think that they have this magical email machine that's going to be taking them all the way. Because if, you know, if you don't have SMS and for people who are doing it, they're finding that SMS is the channel or calling is the channel, then at best, you know, at, at best you're leaving money on the table. And at worst, you know, you're losing deals because you're having these disjointed uh, client experiences with people who aren't getting the, uh, you know, either the, or they're getting hit by multiple agents or multiple people at your firm, or uh, just not getting followed up with because they're assuming that somebody else is going to be doing it. Right. So I think the integration is uh, is a super interesting thing as well. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of curious as far as like the the type of things too, because this is one of the, uh, I'll, I'll just uh, put my devil's advocate on for a little bit too. There's people who always say, look, you know, if somebody was a high net worth person, then why would they be responding to a Facebook ad or a Google ad as far as getting, um, so when, don't these people know attorneys? And what kind of experiences have you been finding with like, you know, the types of cases and the volume of cases that you've been having with people within your program? 
Yeah, so I mean, um, the bottom line is when when it comes right down to the way that we're able to kind of filtrate them, maybe not on the platform, but post, you know, we're we're able to get what their annual household income was prior to the separation, right? So obviously we're looking for in most cases that 80k plus to 100 k plus type range and things of that nature. Um, of course, you don't always get it, but I, I think that people who are firm owners know this, but there's plenty of, uh, there's plenty of scenarios where, you know, a family makes $50,000 a year, but they have a house that's paid off. Right. So as long as they're having those assets that need to be separated and sold off and things of that nature, I mean, that's ultimately what's going to make it, um, you know, the type of case that, uh, that the attorneys are looking for. Plus, I mean, you know, uh, and obviously it doesn't happen this way every time, but like, even if it's just your standard $5,000 retainer, right? When you're getting leads as low as sometimes 10 bucks, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you're converting one out of 50 even, right? Even if it's yeah. just one out of 50, which really our rate is higher than that, but even if it's just one out of 50, you're talking about what, 500 bucks for 5,000? Yeah, revenue? 10X ROI right there. If it's a 10X return, I mean, I think most people are going to take it. So, and of course, you don't want to put people in a position where like they pay your retainer and then they can't pay anything else. The other cool thing is, and I don't know if you've looked at this at all, Jan, but um, there's specific companies that will do lending for legal retainers. And yeah. They do it down to a pretty low credit score as well, right? Yeah. And um, we the had. One that um... We use is called I Qualify, and they literally lend as low as 550, I want to say. Credit wow. Score. Yeah. And the attorney gets paid in full. The interest rate isn't that terrible if they are, if they do have decent credit. And that's not always the way attorneys are going to want to go. But for us, that's something that we talk to them about during the sales process, right? Like, is this something you're you're willing to do, especially given the, the world that we live in right now? Right? Yeah. Unfortunately, the reality is, like I said, mentioned earlier in my little stat, 82% of the country allegedly can't afford a thousand dollars. Right. So if 82% of the country can't afford a thousand dollar emergency, then we need to be able to provide those people a way to divide their assets. Right. Because even if they don't have five thousand dollars in their back pocket, they probably have a hundred thousand dollars in equity or more in their house. You know what I mean? So it's not like they're going to come out of this thing with nothing as long as you as a lawyer do your best job for them. Right. So as long as we're like flexible and have a little bit of an imagination in terms of like, okay, can I help this person? Do they have assets where I'm going to be able to help them maintain their fair share of those assets to where they're going to get their money's worth out of me? Does it make sense for them to potentially, you know, finance my retainer? And if so, then that's the way that I would recommend you proceed with somebody who doesn't have the cash on hand. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and this is the thing we we had. Um, I believe it was Rick Lewis from ePay Legal, not iProspect, but I think they they do similar service. And I was fascinated to talk about him about how this stuff works from a technical perspective. But you having not only that, but also seeing how this fits together from the overall intake perspective, I'm just curious: is this something that you're bringing up early in the intake process, or even on the ads that you're running for clients? Like, when do you tend to introduce this, or recommend your clients to introduce this to somebody who's who's in their uh, in their funnel? Yeah, I mean, I I definitely bring it up 
throughout the sales process, right? So maybe not on the introductory call that I have with a firm, but no, I mean, like, I mean, for the firm with their, uh, with their, oh, for the, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, that goes right back to what I was saying toward the beginning of the episode, right? Where I was mentioning that the firm's first job and the, the way that the firms that are closing the most deals that I listen to their calls, the way that they handle it is the first thing they do is care about the person, right? The first thing they do is make sure that they're ensuring that person that they came to the right place, right? And then once that person feels that way and, and the person wants to know how much it is, right? Not you shoving your retainer down the throat, but the person saying, okay, so how much is this going to cost me? Once they get to the point where they're comfortable enough to even ask that, then it's kind of like, yeah, well, you know, uh, that's definitely going to depend on, you know, your specific scenario. So we certainly need to kind of have a, a an official consult with uh, with one of our attorneys. But here's what I would tell you is that our average, uh, you know, retainers range from 4,500 to 9,000. Is that something you're comfortable with? And if it's not, then you kind of bring up those flexible options, right? And whatever those may be, whether you're using an in-house payment plan or whether you actually have something like I qualify or what was the other one that you said? Well, it was ePay legal. Okay. Yeah. ePay legal where they're actually financing it. Um, I mean, you know, being flexible in that regard is something that um, in, in my estimation is something that we have to do. Like, I don't know. I, I mean, me as a business owner, I'm not that rigid either, right? Yeah. Like if somebody was like, hey, like I can't pay $10,000 for this service. Can I pay 5,000 now and 5,000 in 30 days? Uh, of course you can say yes to that. You know yeah. I mean? Because it's kind of a bad business decision to say, no, if you don't have $10,000 in your pocket, you're not good enough to work with me. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's honestly just being a human being, right? Like that's, that's kind of the way that I look at it. And again, I also like for them to look a little bit further down the line and say, okay, like not only does this person need to be able to afford my retainer, but whatever, you know, hourly rate may come should it go to trial or whatever the case may be. So I need to figure out if this person is going to actually be able to afford to go all the way through the process. And if they're not, right, even if they can, let's say they can afford the initial retainer. What if they have to, like you were saying, yeah, what if it's a scenario where it's going to be one of those things where it's getting up into the $100,000 range, right? So now you might be talking about somebody who's well qualified as far as credit is concerned, and they're going to get a great interest rate on whatever, you know, money they need to, to pay the retainer anyway, right? Mm. So, um, you know, it's really, it almost doesn't make sense to not do it, right? Like, think about it in terms of purchase size, right? Think about it in terms of buying a car. Imagine you went to a car dealer and they were like, no, like we literally yeah. won't sell you a car <laughs> unless you have 60 grand in your pocket. You know what yeah. I mean? Like that would, they, their businesses wouldn't be able to operate that way. And, you know, I mean, there was a time where cars didn't cost as much and people had comparatively more money in general. And, you know, they were able to purchase a car, but that's not, that's not, with the way uh, inflation has gone and the way the prices of cars have gone and wages have stagnated, well, you know, car dealerships haven't changed their business models. So that's kind of just the reality of it where like right now it's not 
the norm at all. It's not even common to see, you know, attorneys offer financings and things of that nature. But I would have to say that, you know, before long, like you would assume that it probably will become the norm at some point, right? Right. Yeah, it's super interesting. I just kind of like zooming out a little bit. I, what I find really interesting about the way that you set up your service is that basically, and if we want to run things back five or 10 years, it was like, hey, look, I'm Jeff, the SEO guy, or I'm, you know, Mike, the AdWords guy or whatever. Like, here's your leads, go get them. So not only have you actually created a ton of value in having process for people to do stuff with it, uh, with the actual leads are being generated, but you're actually getting people to make decisions to change their business and suggesting that which i find super powerful so it's like definitely like awesome and it's it just like you know it's a bigger picture thing which i think is you know going to become the norm for not only agencies but like you know business as a whole kind of moving forward um and i wanted to switch gears a little bit uh because i wanted to talk about linked selling and kind of the work that you've been doing either for linkedin in general but like i also find this really fascinating because I don't think we've ever had somebody on the show. And it's funny because we haven't had anyone on the show who's made Facebook ads work for family law attorneys, but we also have anyone on the show who has made LinkedIn work for attorneys. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? And um, I guess, yeah, just in general and sort of some of the results you've been getting for attorneys and, and that, uh, that, that bridge. Yeah, yeah. So basically, so LinkedIn Leads is an entity that I formed with my partner, David. David has his own agency as well. So we each have our own, you know, agencies, and then we have a uh, a separate entity that we're partnered on. And basically, in linked leads, we actually help multiple different types of B two B firms uh, to acquire more clients using LinkedIn uh, organic outreach. Um, we do it in a way that's a little bit unique, though, because we combine the organic outreach. Uh, with some email follow-up components and also multi-channel retargeting. So the cool thing about the approach is that I, I'm sure you've been exposed to it. Maybe you know some of the lawyers haven't, but people like to leverage the power of Sales Navigator, right? Which is a native LinkedIn platform that has really powerful search functions built right into the platform. So rather than trying to you know target XYZ business owner on Facebook ads and spending thousands of dollars to kind of get that uh, going the right way. People like to kind of shortcut the process, target decision makers in a specific sector inside of LinkedIn, and send those decision makers messages inside of LinkedIn, right? Which, you know, in 2016 or 2017 was really all you had to do. You didn't have to get much fancier than that. But as time has progressed and, and more people have caught on, there's a couple of different things that businesses need to do in order to be able to kind of cut through the noise and differentiate themselves from everyone else that's on the platform. And the way that we've been able to do that is kind of, you know, what I just mentioned. So we start with, first of all, selecting a niche, right? So for us, you know, our niche is family law. So that's, if you go to any of our LinkedIn profiles, anybody who works for our company, that's the niche that we're geared to with, right? So if you're an IP lawyer or uh, a business bankruptcy lawyer, it's probably not enough to just be specific in that service. You should probably be a specialist in not only the service, but who you deliver the service to, right? Because the more specific that you can be on LinkedIn, the more you're going to cut through the noise without kind of getting lost in the weeds, right? And that's really what we help the firms that we work with to do. We say, okay, like, for instance, we have one particular lawyer that we work with right now, 
that works specifically specifically with like logistics stuff. But if you looked at any of their stuff, like whether it's their main website, their LinkedIn profiles, whatever, you would never know that they were specialists in that in that particular sector, right? Mm. So obviously, you know, any of the profiles that we used in order to do prospecting, we tailored them to position them as an expert in that space, right? So that's the first thing that we do because ultimately, if I send you a connection request, Young, the first thing you're going to do is come to my profile, right? Right. So rather than my profile looking like a resume, right, which is what the majority of LinkedIn profiles look like, it's rather going to look like a customer facing almost like a landing page, right? That's almost what we turn the LinkedIn profile into. And basically, outside of the profile optimization, which is kind of what I just glossed over, um, we're also going to have a messaging sequence that coincides with the search that we've done in Sales Navigator and the profile. And that messaging sequence will typically last for about seven days. Uh, it'll be maybe three or four messages in there. And then after that is done, if we haven't gotten a good, so we're going to get about a 20% response rate out of out of that sequence, right? That's our minimum metric, let's say. Some of our people are getting like a 50% response rate. That's neither here nor there. So out of those people, we're going to sort and sift who's interested and who's not, right? And the people who are interested, we're going to get them booked on our client's calendar so that they can have their initial consultation or discovery call or whatever it is that they refer to us, right? And then for the, let's say it's 20% response rate, that means 80% didn't respond, good, bad, or otherwise. So we have no idea where they stand, right? And the reason for that, Jan, is because there's a lot of people who will connect with you on LinkedIn that literally never check your LinkedIn inbox. So it doesn't mean that they got your messaging and read it and said, oh, this guy, his message yeah. sucks or his offer sucks or whatever. No, they never read your message, right? So rather than let those 80% of people, which is the largest segment of the people that we've connected with slip through the cracks, we're going to roll those people out into a lukewarm email follow-up. We call it a lukewarm email follow-up because it's kind of like cold email, but you have a basis for your relationship by the fact that you've connected with them and LinkedIn. Does that make sense? Right. Cool. So we roll them out into the uh, lukewarm email follow-up. And the cool thing about it is we get a super high open rate and a super high response rate from those email follow-up sequences. And it's it's directly correlated to the fact that we've already connected with the person on LinkedIn, right? So obviously with that, we're able to pick up a few more bookings for ourselves, our clients, whatever the case may be. Just to be clear, this is a process that we run for our own lead generation, not just lawyers, right? The other facets are the fact that we are also going to roll them into uh, multiple custom audiences for multi-channel retargeting, right? So the way that we do that is every time we, we connect with someone, we get their email address. That email address is automatically zapped into a custom audience in Facebook ads so we can serve them ads on Facebook and Instagram. And then also a software called AdRoll. And the reason we use AdRoll is because it enables you to zap people into a custom audience like that and serve ads to them on Google Display Network, native advertising networks, LinkedIn, which is where we initially connected. With wow, them, yeah. Um, and a couple other placements. So really what's awesome about this, Jan, is that you can literally use like a $5 or $10 a day budget, right? 
and you can be everywhere to these people. And the reason for that is because it's only the people that you've connected with, right? So let's do the math. Let's say we reach out to 2,500 people a month. We get a 20% connection rate, which is our minimum metric, right? So you're talking about 500 people who are getting added to your custom audience on a monthly basis. Well, guess what? It's not it's not that expensive to stay in front of 500 people with paid ads, right? right? So if that's all you got in your audience and you're only spending five or 10 bucks a day, those 500 people are going to be like, man, this guy's everywhere. He's killing it. <laughs> yeah. And if but, they ask their friends in the industry, they all have the same thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, it really enables you to have that, that omnipresent feel without having, you know, a, the budget of a gigantic corporation. If that makes sense. Yeah. And that's a super cool thing too, because it's, it's really interesting. Like, you know, one of the things that I really, and I'm, I'm starting to see the commonalities in the process that you guys are running for Facebook and the process for LinkedIn. Cause the key is if you don't have a process to do something with the people who aren't saying yes right now, uh, you know, the ability to follow up with people over time and get that conversational filtration. Oh, I'm, I'm talking like an engineer, but like the, the conversational filtering uh, is going to be really key to keeping those people out and, and also keeping your calendar clean as far as that goes. And that's, and I mean, if, would I be correct to say more or less, it's kind of a similar thing that's happening with the sequences, whether it's on LinkedIn or on Facebook? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, and, and I mean, the other thing is, you know, with, with our tonality, especially in LinkedIn, like we're not very salesy, right? We're not like really going for the jugular when it comes to LinkedIn, which is atypical of what you'll normally see. Um, and the reason for that is because, you know, that's what a lot of people do, right? They right. just straight up go right for the jugular. And, you know, I guess it works if somebody just happens to be like hot and ready to go right at that very second. But for everyone else, it's going to be a little bit of a turnoff, right? Right. But, you know, the amazing thing is, that like we've lived, I literally had a lady who I sent a connection to request to September 22nd, 2017. She responded back on August 24th of 2020. Wow. She's been my client for three months. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's the reason why we don't, you know, go too hard or go for the juggler right out of the gate. Cause it's like, you know, LinkedIn is uh, something where, you, you don't want to tarnish your brand, right? While you're doing prospect. You want to be able to prospect without doing damage to your brand at the same time. So there's a very specific way or a, kind of a fine line to toe that you're going to want to be able to say, okay, like we're doing enough to let them know this is the service that we offer. We're really good at it. This, that, and the third. But we're not, we're also not being overbearing to the point where, you know, we're turning people off at an alarming rate, right? Yeah. So that's really kind of um, our strategy. And honestly, the reason that David and I teamed up is because David accidentally tried prospecting me one day back in 2017 in LinkedIn, right? <laughs> and being that I was already doing the same thing to acquire my own clients, I was like, oh man, that's cool. What, what are you doing? What software are you using? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Are you doing third? <laughs> And he's like, oh, no, I didn't even know you could do all that stuff. That's crazy. And I'm like, yeah, what do your numbers look like? And his numbers were <laughs> better than mine, even though I was doing all this extra stuff, right? So I'm like, oh, man, this guy must have his messaging and his targeting and all that stuff dialed in. Because, like, 
he's doing as good or better than me. And I'm doing all this extra stuff, this email follow-up and retargeting and this, that, and the third, right? Yeah. So when we combined uh, our processes, that's where we were able to put together something that was like really potent, right? And really carried me all the way up until this year. I would say like March or April of this year is the first time I really ever started running uh, cold paid traffic for our, our own agency, right? Up yeah. until then, LinkedIn was our was the lifeblood of our agency. That was the, literally the only thing that we used. So what ended up happening was that after David and I teamed up, it was kind of born out of demand rather than us like thinking like, oh, we should create this partnership and go, you know, sell this service to people. It was more like, you know, other people in the agency space, other people were asking us like, oh, how do you guys do that? You know what I mean? And after, you know, doing a couple of master classes and, you know, this, that, and the third, David and I were just like, all right, man, let's just form a complete, completely separate entity and we'll teach people how to do this. Or if they want us to do it for them, we'll just do it for them, whatever the case may be. You know what I mean? Uh, but it's, it's kind of unique in that it wasn't something that we planned on or, you know, plotted on. Yeah. It was something that was really born out of demand rather than out of us thinking that it was a great idea or anything. Yeah. And it kind of sounds like it's like you guys almost have sort of like some of the like elemental approaches to marketing, right? There's like kind of like the technology like angle and like sounds like David's got like a big time of the, uh, he's got like, you know, the hustle and the copywriting sort of thing. And, and when you can get the best of all worlds, I mean, I'm sure that contributes to the success that you guys have been having. All right. Awesome, man. I mean, I know uh, we're getting to the end of the hour, but it's been super awesome to talk to you. And I mean, we got two really, really interesting and very diverse topics and kind of like, you know, the CRM and the Facebook follow-up and also LinkedIn. So if anyone has been liking what they're hearing, what's the best way for somebody to get in touch with you? Yeah. So um, for family law, it's just, it's a pretty simple website address, although it might not be the easiest one to spell. It's familylawaccelerator.com. And then um, for linked leads, uh, we really don't do that much in terms of uh, selling stuff uh, without, you know, really just kind of getting on the phone with people or whatever the case may be. But we do, we did write a book um, and that book is, I guess, technically it is available for purchase now. So that is linkedleadsbook.com. So that's, that book is not, it's not like a lead magnet book or anything like that. It's like a, literally a hundred page book that just describes our entire process. Basically what I just summarized to you in more depth, right? So that's really the only thing that we had there. Like I said, that was kind of born out of, uh, out of demand rather than us planning it. That's pretty much the, the two different things that we discussed in terms of how they would be able to potentially access this. All right. Awesome, man. So it's like, you know, super appreciate both of those. And um, as far as like, yeah, depending, I, mean, I don't think there's probably a ton of <laughs> the Venn diagram for people at both is probably pretty slim, but depending on which one, <laughs> depending on which one uh, is where we, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it, it's, it's a really good resource. So um, guys, I want everyone to kind of pay attention to some of the commonalities. And another thing I want to say is that uh, we talk about a lot of different things. So the process is obviously super important, but if we start from that base assumption that a bunch of people that are reaching out are not going to be able to buy right now, you got to be there to play and you got to make sure you're following up with the way that James does it is great. It's, but it's, it's super important to think about this stuff in the long term. So thank you so much for uh, sharing all that stuff with us, James. 
And for everyone else, I'll see you guys in another episode of the Law Firm Growth Podcast next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.